Part three, chapters four to six of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four: Our troubles continue. The next morning, when we were eating a very excellent breakfast of kidneys and bacon prepared by our good cook Bumpo, the doctor said to me, "I was just wondering, Stubbins, whether I should stop at the Capablanca Islands." or run right across for the coast of Brazil. Miranda said we could expect a spell of excellent weather now, for four and a half weeks at least. Well, I said, spooning out the sugar at the bottom of my cocoa cup. I should think it would be best to make straight across while we are sure of good weather. And besides, the purple bird of paradise is going to keep a lookout for us, isn't she? She'll be wondering what's happened to us if we don't get there in about a month. True, quite true, Stubbins. On the other hand, the Capablancas make a very convenient stopping place on our way across. If we should need supplies or repairs, it would be very handy to put in there. How long will it take us from here to the Capablancas? I asked. About six days, said the doctor. Well, we can decide later. For the next two days at any rate, our direction would be the same practically in either case. If you have finished breakfast, let's go and get underway. Upstairs I found our vessel surrounded by white and gray seagulls who flashed and circled about in the sunny morning air, looking for food scraps thrown out by the ships into the harbor. By about half-past seven we had the anchor up and the sail set to a nice steady breeze, and this time we got out into the open sea without bumping into a single thing. We met the Penzance fishing fleet coming in from the night's fishing, and very trim and neat they looked in a line like soldiers, with their red-brown sails all leaning over the same way, and the white water dancing before their bows. For the next three or four days everything went smoothly, and nothing unusual happened. During this time we all got settled down into our regular jobs, and in spare moments the doctor showed each of us how to take our turns at the wheel, the proper manner of keeping a ship on her right course, and what to do if the wind changed suddenly. We divided the twenty-four hours of the day into three spells, and we took it in turns to sleep our eight hours and be awake sixteen, so the ship was well looked after with two of us always on duty. Besides that, Polynesia, who was an older sailor than any of us, and really knew a lot about running ships, seemed to be always awake, except when she took her couple of winks in the sun, standing on one leg beside the wheel. You may be sure that no one ever got a chance to stay abed more than eight hours while Polynesia was around. She used to watch the ship's clock, and if you overslept a half minute, she would come down to the cabin and peck you gently on the nose till you got up. I very soon grew to be quite fond of our funny black friend Bumpo, with his grand way of speaking and his enormous feet, which someone was always stepping on or falling over. Although he was much older than I was, and had been to college, he never tried to lord it over me. He seemed to be forever smiling, and kept all of us in good humor. It wasn't long before I began to see the doctor's good sense in bringing him, in spite of the fact that he knew nothing whatever about sailing or travel. One morning of the fifth day out, just as I was taking the wheel over from the doctor, Bumpo appeared and said, The salt beef is nearly all gone, sir. The salt beef? cried the doctor. Why? We brought a hundred and twenty pounds with us. We couldn't have eaten that in five days. What can have become of it? I don't know, sir, I'm sure. Every time I go down to the stores, I find another hunk missing. 
If it is the rats that are eating it, then they are certainly colossal rodents. Polynesia, who is walking up and down a stay rope, taking her morning exercise, put in, We must search the hold. If this is allowed to go on, we will all be starving before a week is out. Come downstairs with me, Tommy, and we will look into this matter. So we went downstairs into the storeroom, and Polynesia told us to keep quite still and listen. This we did, and presently we heard from a dark corner of the hold a distinct sound of someone snoring. I thought so, said Polynesia. It's a man, and a big one. Climb in there, both of you, and haul him out. It sounds as though he were behind that barrel. Gosh, we seem to have brought half of Puddleby with us. Anyone would think we were a penny ferryboat. Such cheek. Haul him out. So Bumpo and I lit a lantern and climbed over the stores. And there, behind the barrel, sure enough, we found an enormous bearded man fast asleep with a well-fed look on his face. We woke him up. Arr, what's the matter? He said sleepily. It was Ben Butcher, the able seaman. Polynesia sputtered like an angry firecracker. This is the last straw, said she. The one man in the world we least wanted. Shiver my timbers. What cheek! Would it not be advisable, suggested Bumpo, while the varlet is still sleepy, to strike him on the head with some heavy object and push him through a pothole into the sea? No, we'd get into trouble, said Polynesia. We're not in Jolly Ginky now, you know. Worse luck. Besides, there never was a porthole big enough to push that man through. Bring him upstairs to the doctor. So we led the man to the wheel where he respectfully touched his cap to the doctor. Another stowaway, sir, said Bumpo smartly. I thought the poor doctor would have a fit. Good morning, Captain, said the man. Ben Butcher, able seaman at your service. I knew you'd need me, so I took the liberty of stowing away, much against me conscience. But I couldn't bear to see you poor landsmen set out on this voyage without a single real seaman to help you. You'd never have got home alive if I hadn't come. Why, look at your mainsail, sir, all loose at the throat. First gust of wind come along, and away goes your canvas overboard. Why, it's all right now I'm here. We'll soon get things in shipshape. No, it isn't all right, said the doctor. It's all wrong, and I'm not at all glad to see you. I told you in Puddleby I didn't want you. You had no right to come. Er, but captain, said the able seaman. You can't soil this ship without me. You don't understand navigation. Why, look at the compass now. You've let her swing a point and a half of her course. It's madness for you to try to do this trip alone. If you'll pardon my saying so, sir, why, why, you'll lose the ship. Look here said the doctor, a sudden stern look coming into his eyes. Losing a ship is nothing to me. I've lost ships before, and it doesn't bother me in the least. When I set out to go to a place, I get there. Do you understand? I may know nothing whatever about sailing and navigation, but I get there just the same. 
Now, you may be the best seaman in the world, but on this ship, you're just a plain ordinary nuisance. Very plain and very ordinary. And I am now going to call at the nearest port and put you ashore. Yes, and think yourself lucky. Polynesia put in. That you are not locked up for stowing away and eating all our salt beef. I don't know what the mischief we're going to do now. I heard her whisper to Bumpo. We've no money to buy any more, and that salt beef was the most important part of the stores. Would it not be good political economy? Bumpo whispered back. If we salted the able seaman and ate him instead, I should judge that he would weigh more than a hundred and twenty pounds. How often must I tell you that we are not in Jolly Ginky? Snapped Polynesia. Those things are not done on white men's ships. Still... She murmured after a moment's thought. It's an awfully bright idea. I don't suppose anybody saw him come onto the ship. Oh, but heavens, we haven't got enough salt. Besides, he'd be sure to taste of tobacco. Chapter 5. Polynesia Has a Plan Then the doctor told me to take the wheel while he made a little calculation with his map and worked out what new course we should take. I shall have to run for the Capablancas after all. He told me when the seaman's back was turned. Dreadful nuisance. But I'd sooner swim back to Puddleby than have to listen to that fellow's talk all the way to Brazil. Indeed, he was a terrible person, this Ben Butcher. You'd think that anyone, after being told he wasn't wanted, would have had the decency to keep quiet. But not Ben Butcher. He kept going round the deck pointing out all the things we had wrong. According to him, there wasn't a thing right on the whole ship. The anchor was hitched up wrong. The hatches weren't fastened down properly. The sails were put on back to front. All our knots were the wrong kind of knots. At last the doctor told him to stop talking and go downstairs. He refused, said he wasn't going to be sunk by landlubbers while he was still able to stay on deck. This made us feel very uneasy. He was such an enormous man that there was no knowing what he might do if he got really obstreperous. Bumpo and I were talking about this downstairs in the dining saloon when Polynesia, Chip, and Chichi came and joined us. And as usual, Polynesia had a plan. Listen, she said. I am certain this Ben Butcher is a smuggler and a bad man. I am a very good judge of seamen, remember, and I don't like the cut of this man's jib. I... Do you really think... I interrupted. That it is safe for the doctor to cross the Atlantic without any regular seamen on his ship? You see, it had upset me quite a good deal to find that all the things we had been doing were wrong, and I was beginning to wonder what might happen if we ran into a storm, particularly as Miranda had only said the weather would be good for a certain time, and we seemed to be having so many delays. But Polynesia merely tossed her head scornfully. Ah, bless you, my boy, said she. You're always safe with John Doolittle. Remember that. Don't take any notice of that stupid old salt. Of course, it is perfectly true that the doctor does do everything wrong. But with him, it doesn't matter. Mark my words. If you travel with John Doolittle, you always get there, as you heard him say. I've been with him lots of times, and I know. Sometimes the ship is upside down when you get there. And sometimes it's right way up. But you get there just the same. And then, of course, there's another thing about the doctor. She added thoughtfully. 
he always has extraordinary good luck. He may have his troubles, but with him, things seem to have a habit of turning out all right in the end. I remember once, when we were going through the Straits of Magellan, the wind was so strong. But what are we going to do about Ben Butcher? Jip put in. You had some plan, Polynesia, hadn't you? Yes. What I'm afraid of is that he may hit the doctor on the head when he's not looking and make himself captain of the Curlew. Bad sailors do that sometimes. Then they run the ship their own way and take it where they want. That's what you call a mutiny. Yes, said Jip. And we ought to do something pretty quick. We can't reach the Capablancas before the day after tomorrow at best. I don't like to leave the doctor alone with him for a minute. He smells like a very bad man to me. Well, I've got it all worked out, said Polynesia. Listen, is there a key in that door? We looked outside the dining room and found that there was. All right, said Polynesia. Now Bumpo lays the table for lunch, and we all go and hide. Then at twelve o'clock, Bumpo rings the dinner bell down here. As soon as Ben hears it, he'll come down, expecting more salt beef. Bumpo must hide behind the door outside. The moment that Ben is seated at the dining table, Bumpo slams the door and locks it. Then we've got him, see? Oh, strategenius, Bumpo chuckled. As Cicero said, parrots comparisoners facilime congregation. I'll lay the table at once. Yes, and take that Worcestershire sauce off the dresser with you when you go out, said Polynesia. Don't leave any loose eatables around. The fellow has had enough to last any man for three days. Besides, he won't be so inclined to start a fight when we put him ashore at the Capablancas if we thin him down a bit before we let him out. So we all went and hid ourselves in the passage where we could watch what happened. And presently Bumpo came to the foot of the stairs and rang the dinner bell like mad. Then he hopped behind the dining room door, and we all kept still and listened. Almost immediately, thump, 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 down the stairs tramped Ben Butcher, the able seaman. He walked into the dining room, sat himself down at the head of the table in the doctor's place, tucked a napkin under his fat chin, and heaved a sigh of expectation. Then, bang, Bumpo slammed the door and locked it. That settles him for a while said Polynesia, coming out from her hiding place. Now let him teach navigation to the sideboard. Gosh, the cheek of the man. I've forgotten more about the sea than that lumbering lout will ever know. Let's go upstairs and tell the doctor. Bumpo, you will have to serve the meals in the cabin for the next couple of days. And bursting into a rollicking Norwegian sea song, she climbed up to my shoulder and we went on deck. Chapter 6 the Bedmaker of Monteverde. We remained three days in the Capa Blanca Islands. There were two reasons why we stayed there so long, when we were really in such a hurry to get away. One was the shortage of our provisions caused by the able seaman's enormous appetite. When we came to go over the stores and make a list, we found that he had eaten a whole lot of other things besides the beef, and having no money, we were sorely puzzled how to buy more. The doctor went through his trunk to see if there was anything he could sell, but the only thing he could find was an old watch with the hands broken and the back dented in, and we decided this would not bring us in enough money to buy much more than a pound of tea. Bumpo suggested that he sing comic songs in the streets, which he had learned in Jolly Ginky, but the doctor said he did not think that the islanders would care for African music. 
The other thing that kept us was the bullfight. In these islands, which belonged to Spain, they had bullfights every Sunday. It was on Friday that we arrived there, and after he had got rid of the able seamen, we took a walk through the town. It was a very funny little town, quite different from any that I had ever seen. The streets were all twisty and winding, and so narrow that a wagon could only just pass along them. The houses overhung at the top and came so close together that people in the attics could lean out the windows and shake hands with their neighbors on the opposite side of the street. The doctor told us the town was very, very old. It was called Monteverde. As we had no money, of course, we did not go to the hotel or anything like that. But on the second evening, when we were passing by a bedmaker's shop, we noticed several beds, which the man had made, standing on the pavement outside. The doctor started chatting in Spanish to the bedmaker, who was sitting at his door whistling to a parrot in a cage. The doctor and the bedmaker got very friendly, talking about birds and things, and as it grew near to supper time, the man asked us to stop and sup with him. This, of course, we were very glad to do, and after the meal was over, very nice dishes they were, mostly cooked in olive oil, I particularly like the fried bananas, we sat outside on the pavement again and went on talking far into the night. At last, when we got to go back to our ship, this very nice shopkeeper wouldn't hear of our going away on any account. He said the streets down the harbor were very badly lighted, and there was no moon. We would surely get lost. He invited us to spend the night with him and go back to our ship in the morning. Well, we finally agreed, and as our good friend had no spare bedrooms, the three of us, the Dr. Bumpo and I, slept on the beds set out for sale on the pavement before the shop. The night was so hot we needed no coverings. It was great fun to fall asleep out of doors like this, watching the people walking to and fro and the gay life of the streets. It seemed to me that the Spanish people never went to bed at all. Late as it was, all the little restaurants and cafes around us were wide open, with customers drinking coffee and chatting merrily at the small tables outside. The sound of a guitar strumming softly in the distance mingled with a clatter of chinaware and the babble of voices. Somehow it made me think of my mother and father far away in Puddleby, with their regular habits, the evening practice on the flute and the rest, doing the same thing every day. I felt sort of sorry for them in a way, because they missed the fun of this traveling life, where we were doing something new all the time, even sleeping differently. But I suppose if they had been invited to go to bed on a pavement in front of a shop they wouldn't have cared for the idea at all. It is funny how some people are. End of Part 3, Chapter 6